Hello. We're almost finished this whole idea or this um, this subject that we're looking at at the moment and looking at marriage. And then um, after I wrap this up in a few moments, we're going to move into looking at um, some uh, wonderful Bible stories uh, and um, looking at Bible stories that deal with themes that are address Islamic issues, because I think it's really helpful to know what kind of verses, what kind of stories we can turn to in the Quran. Um, as we have challenged Islam and your Muslim friend is now feeling a little bit uh, unsure about their religion and they have some big questions, you need to start bringing them um, into this book here, back into the Bible, so that they can then begin to see how the Bible deals with some of the themes that they are interested in, or some of the pastoral issues that some of the of men and women will deal, deal with. So just before we do that, just as a quickie, sort of a wrap up, we've looked at Muhammad, we've looked at different areas of comparison. So we've looked at um, biblical uh, monogamy versus is, uh, Islamic polygamy. Uh, we've looked at biblical intimacy versus Islamic uh, alienation. We've looked at biblical faithfulness versus um, Islamic unfaithfulness or Quranic unfaithfulness. We've looked at biblical respect versus um, blind obedience that's in the Quran. We've looked at biblical paradise. Um, in previous sessions, and I, so I won't go too much now into this, versus Islamic paradise. And just one point to make on the whole thing of Islamic paradise, when you look at Islamic paradise, and we have mentioned this before, you will see uh, uh, um, verses that talk about uh, 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 the sin that enters into the paradise, sin that's not left behind, sin that only not only enters to paradise, but is actually the reward that God gives. And ask your Muslim friends this, when you ask them, uh, what, what is the end goal for you and they start talking about paradise and often if they don't know the details of paradise you tell them the details of paradise good verses you can go to are, are verses like surah 2 25 4 57 29 64 55 56 and onwards 56 35 to 36 and 78 31 and there's others and of course you have the hadith the saints of muhammad the exegetes and, and so on who talk about the paradise and just ask them how is it that not only does sin follow them into paradise but how is it that God even gives them for a reward, for a reward, he gives them sin? That's the reward in paradise. <laughs> Here in, in the Bible, the whole point of the Bible is to, to get sin out of us. The whole point of the Bible is to make us whole again, is to make us righteous because of what Christ has done. When we move into that heaven, heavenly place, that place he's preparing for us, we move into a place where there is no more sin. And there is no more consequence sequence of sin. And yet this book, it takes you into a sinful paradise, um, not, in, not in the sense that sexuality is sin, but in the way it is acted out in paradise, the uh, immoral way that is dealt with in paradise, the evil way it is dealt with in paradise. So it gives them, God gives them or Allah gives them a reward of sin. And ask your Muslim friend that particular uh, question. How does Allah, why does Allah, or what kind of God is this that would reward human beings with something that is so sinful? My Muslim friends have responded this way. Well, Betty, when we get to paradise, Allah is going to give us whatever we desire. I was talking to a Muslim missionary literally about two weeks ago on this topic. And I said to him, okay, tell me about your paradise. And he said, whatever I desire, I will have. I said, okay, in British law, it's, it's immoral and it's wrong to marry a six-year-old and certainly wrong to consummate it at nine. I said, what if when you get to paradise, uh, you, you desire a nine-year-old? He says, I get whatever I desire. And so I began to um, say a, a few other sins that are rather troubling. And he says, I get what I desire. 
I said, what if you're, so if you're desiring sin or abuse of another human being, you get that. And actually they have to accept. Yes, that's what they get. Now, is it, is it a deep theology in the Quran? It's probably referred to. Um, it's, it would be referred to in other hadith. But it's certainly even ideas like that that may not be taught deeply in the Quran or the hadith, it's in the normal uh, mind of a Muslim that this is what they're going to receive. There's a lot of apologetics. There's a lot of Islamic theology, Islamic ideas that aren't necessarily deeply grounded in this book, although that kind of idea is inferred in this book where it comes to they will receive their wishes or their desires. So sin follows them into the afterlife. So we've looked at the multiple marriages that that is a corruption of the one, the intimacy of biblical marriage. We've looked at the unequal treatment between men and women. We've looked at how um, Muhammad, many of his wives were young, were teenagers, that they could take young girls. And there's implication, if you desired that, you could also have that in in paradise if, if you get what you desire, if that unfortunately is your inclination. So there's all sorts of troubling concepts and um, morality issues that come up when you really begin to unpack the whole position of men and women in Islam. And just point blank, ask your dear Muslim friends, just say, my friend, I am troubled as a Christian when I see what your book teaches. I am troubled as a Christian when I see the life of your prophet, when I see how your prophet lived and you are supposed to follow that and the kind of teaching he got supposedly from your Allah. I'm troubled by that. Let me show you a far better way in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my colleagues in the UK, um, Jay Smith, always says, bring them home, bring them home. And that's what it's all about. Bring them home to Jesus. Bring them back to Jesus. Bring them home. That's the whole point why we challenge Islam. So we're going to turn to now looking at biblical themes um, which deal with uh, Quranic ideas and deal with uh, more pastoral situations that you will find in the homes of Muslims. And I've had this kind of situation or come across these kinds of situations in the many countries that I've traveled in. I'm based in London, but have a fair amount of experience traveling um, to different Muslim countries and and going home with my Muslim friends to their countries. I used to teach English as a second language. And whenever a Muslim friend invited me back to their country, I went back to their country because I wanted to see how Islam was worked out in their environment. And these issues I've seen in the Muslim world and also in the Western Muslim world. There are big pockets of Islam in the Western world where almost parts of those societies, parts of our cities and our towns have been handed to an is- over to an Islamic way of life. So there's lots of Muslim communities that we move around in London and the big cities of Britain. So if you remember a few sessions ago, we talked about a woman's identity. A man's identity is probably received similar to a a Muslim man's identity is probably similar to how a Christian man would receive identity, certainly just on a on a human level and not on a spiritual level, but on a human level. But it's the woman where she's really uh, only the Muslim woman is only seen within that context of family. We talked about how her a woman's identity and her value comes from being a mother, being a wife, um, a daughter, sister. She's seen as a daughter, sister and value valued if she's a wife and then, of course, a mother. That's very important in Islam. And we see many examples um, of Muhammad in this uh, uh, and how he viewed women and, and his wives. And a Christian woman's identity is Christ, just like a Christian man's identity is Christ. You're, 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 you're valuable just because of how you're made and who you are in the image of God. 
but we, our identity is given to us when we walk in Christ and he gives us um, a, a, an eternal vision, a, a vision to, help, to bring the world back into reconciliation with him. We are the ones who carry that message. We are his ambassadors. It's an utter privilege to be ambassador for the King of Kings. And that's why we do these sessions. That's why we do these classes because we need to learn their thinking, their corrupt thinking, which is taught in this book. And then we introduce them to the one who, whose family he, um, uh, he, he, God wants us to belong to, his family, his eternal family. We want to bring those almost two billion Muslims in the world into the eternal family of God. Take them, it may take them out of their actual literal family. In being gospel evangelists, we will take Muslims because of the consequence of them choosing Christ. They will have to sometimes leave their earthly family. But what's more important, the earthly family or the spiritual eternal family? It's the eternal family that's important. Or the eternal family that ultimately is the end goal. Our earthly families are are God-given and they're important. But we sometimes have to walk away from them if that's what happens when we turn to Christ. And that can be the consequence because families reject Muslims sometimes when they come to Christ. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a list of verses that I hope will be helpful in as you uh, have challenged their religion and you're now introducing them to gospel ideas and showing the biblical view of things. We're going to have a list of Old Testament um, stories and then also move into the New Testament. Now, the reason I've done this is because, and um, Christian brethren, uh, 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 forgive me for this, but when I read Bible commentaries and when I hear men preach in many churches around the world, and I've traveled through uh, almost 30 different countries, and um, as I listen to Christian men preach, many examples are given of men. That's fine. That's not a problem. But often the Bible's taught from a male perspective. It's taught giving examples of, of men of old. I would like us to focus a little bit on giving examples of women, of which there are over a hundred mentioned in the Bible. Many are mentioned by name. In the Quran, only one woman is mentioned by name, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Again, a very interesting interesting title, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the other title that Jesus, or they call him Isa, it's not a, a person I even recognize, but this Isa, who Muslims say is Jesus, uh, and I tell them, by the way, when I read Isa in this book, it doesn't even look like my, my Jesus, so I'm not sure if it is Jesus. Anyway, that's a side issue. So you have the Isa of this, he's called Isa ibn Maryam, or you have um, Mary, the mother of Jesus interesting title. That title was introduced about the 4th century or so. It was, uh, it was in play around the 4th century, 5th, 6th century. And when we know, when we look at the Quran, we know that this Quran borrowed from a lot of pre-existing literature that, uh, that, that is not biblical. We know it borrowed from heretical Christian groups. It seems that the stories of Isa and even their titles, the titles of Isa, the title of Mary, is borrowed from ideas that started in the fourth century or around that time, but not in the first century from the time of Jesus, which means the Easter that's in this book is not even the historical Jesus from the first century. Because Jesus wasn't closely connected with his mother in this book. The issue was not who his mother was, Mary. The issue was who Jesus was. This book focuses on who Jesus' mother was. Mary seems to be so important to this book. And so even the ideas of Isa in this book are a corruption of the true story. And we know we can trace them back to a specific time period, a few hundred years or so after the Lord Jesus lived. 
Now, we're going to look at Mary in a minute, but let's go right back to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to go back to Genesis 1, 27 to 28. This is just helpful little themes and helpful little stories to be able to use when you talk with Muslims. Genesis 1, 27 to 28, that's the famous verse where it says, God made a, ma- a man and woman in his image. Now, we need to know what that verse actually says because I heard a, a, a Christian, de- a Muslim debater saying that, saying that uh, the Bible says only man is made in God's image. If you read the text, it talks about God made mankind in his image. And if a Muslim stops there, puts the full stop in and say, see, mankind, ma- male, that's how they're interpreting it, is imposing onto our text something that's not there because mankind in that particular verse in the English, mankind means human beings. That's what it means. It's the old-fashioned way of saying human beings. But of course, the Muslim puts the full stop there and doesn't read the rest of the verse. For God made mankind, male and female, he made them in his image, male and female. And it's clear as day, it's male and female. So it's one of those examples when you must read the whole of the verse and make sure your Muslim friend has read the whole of the verse. Male and female are made in God's image. That means both the man and the woman reflect something of God. That's profound that we reflect something of God. Male and female, that's our value. That's why God died for us because we're so valuable to him and we reflect something of God. Uh, one of my colleagues in the room here was talking about how a theologian was talking about this. If you look at the, the God of the Bible, he's the triune God, the eternally relational God, the God um, who was eternally loving, eternally relationship. And so the, the whole role of man and woman in society and even in marriage, which we've just been talking about in previous sessions, this whole uh, um, intimate relationship between a man and a woman and then just the community of believers brothers and sisters in Christ, this community of the family of God, it reflects our triune God. It reflects who God is. That's why when a Muslim introduces their concept of man and woman, they don't have a triune God. They don't have an eternally relational God, an eternally loving God. And so when they talk about man and woman, it's this empty view of man and woman. There's rigid rules and regulations. There's no in-depth theological ideas of what man and woman, both in the community, Christian community, and in marriage reflect. We reflect our triune God when we live in community. And the man and woman reflects, in marriage, reflects the intimate relationship God has with his people. Profound theology in all of these normal, everyday uh, ways that we live as Christians. So then I move my Muslim friend on to Eve, uh, Genesis 3.15. This is the bit in the Quranic story they leave out. You look at Eve and we see that um, Adam, and Eve, Adam and Eve have sinned. They, they have fallen, um, if you want to use that term with a Muslim, explain it. And they have gone against God. And then the first prophecy of the Savior is given through Eve. In Genesis 3.15, it talks about how through her seed, and it talks about Satan's head will be crushed through her seed. Wow, the first prophecy of the savior of the world is given to the woman and says it will come through the woman. That's profound. And show that with, to your Muslim friends because it, it, because it shows how central woman is to God's salvation plan. Woman is at the heart of God's salvation plan. 
Then I take them on to Miriam, um, Exodus 15, verse 20, Micah 6, 4. And it talks about Miriam is considered a leader among her people. She is a priestess among her people. She leads them in public worship. And the women are behind her. She leads them in public worship um, as they're celebrating the things that God has done. She's close to the leaders, Aaron and Moses. And she's right with them as they're, they're leading the people out of slavery and into the promised land, a picture of, of salvation to come and of rescue to come through the Lord Jesus. Again, a woman at the heart of God's plan. There's nothing like that in the Quran. Only one woman is mentioned by name. And most of the times women are mentioned in this book, it is derogatory. It puts women down. It puts women in their place. It subjugates them. It oppresses them. And it even threatens them, according to Surah 65. Then I move them on to Hagar. Hagar saw and she spoke with God. She, Hagar was a, an abandoned woman. And of course, the, Hagar is very important to Muslims as the mother of Ishmael, who they believe Muhammad comes from. She was rejected. She was abandoned. And she was a lowly maidservant. And God spoke with her. She saw him and she knew she'd seen him. God meets with us in human form. We have a, a topic, and I won't go into too much detail here, but it's called the hermeneutical key. We, it's one of the, the, the key that we use to introduce the gospel to Muslims. It's, it's based on two verses, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. And it's the verse where it says God walks and talks with, um, in the garden. The fall has just happened. God is walking and talking. And it's the idea that this God has always been walking and talking with us. Well, right here we have Hagar who saw God. God was walking and talking with her and meeting to her needs. A vulnerable, rejected woman, which Islamic society would have kicked out of their society if she'd lived today. Rahab, an immoral woman. Hebrews 11 talks about Rahab. And of course, in the Old Testament, she's talked about she is an immoral woman who saw the things of God. She'd heard about this God of Israel and how he brought them into the land of Canaan. She was the prostitute. And um, it's fascinating because this prostitute, after she, she, she chose to help the people of Israel and to follow their God, this prostitute is in the line of Jesus. So Jesus' line comes from her. What does that say about how God views this woman who was a corrupt, sinful woman? He can transform her to the point where she becomes part of the line that Jesus came from through um, Mary and Joseph. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, and of course, Muslims don't understand that because then they'll think, oh, you're talking about then Jesus has just got human origin. That's not the point here. It's the point that in the genealogies, when you look back, you'll see Rahab in the line of the, of the lines that come in um, from his earthly parents. But of course, that's not his actual origin. And you need to explain that with Muslims. Then Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was not part of God's people. Ruth was an outsider. Muslims don't know what to do with outsiders. Now, Muslims can be very hospitable, but if you take Islamic theology and you take the life of Muhammad and his sayings literally, you, Muslims would not normally be a very hospitable person to outsiders and non-Muslims. That is why the more closer to Islam a Muslim becomes, the more they read this book, the more they follow the life of Muhammad and implement his teaching and his practices, the more cold, distant and cruel they come towards non-Muslims. Radical Islam does that because they've followed their roots. That's what radical means. They followed their book. 
Well, those of us who follow this book, the Bible, the more we go back to our root, the more we go base our life on Jesus and this book, we become more hospitable. We become much more um, welcoming of those who are outside of the fold. And Ruth was outside of the fold. She wasn't part of the people of God. And yet she decided to follow the God of the Israelites. And as a result, she's in the line of Jesus, an outsider, someone who doesn't even legitimately belong as part of the people of God. Why? Because it was her faith and her her desire for, for the one true God that brought her into the family of God. Help Muslims see this. This is what the Bible's all about. It brings in the outsiders. It brings in the immoral. And it transforms them and brings them into God's eternal family. Something that Muslims don't really understand. What about Abigail? This is really important, folks, when you come to talking to Muslims. Because Abigail represents the kind of woman who was uh, uh, one of David's wives, and he was a polygamist. And of course, Muslims love to point out to David and Solomon. Those are the two favorite. They would say Dawood and Suleiman. And as they look at David and Solomon, they, um, they, they will often say, well, they were polygamists, therefore, and they're prophets, although we wouldn't really call them prophets. I think we'd more call them kings. And uh, Muslims call them prophets. And they would say, see, they're perfect. They're sinless because all prophets are sinless. And David and Solomon did polygamy. Therefore, you Christians should be doing polygamy. That's how they interpret it. Well, the point, we've addressed that in previous sessions. So I won't uh, go through that now. But the point of this with Abigail, one of the wives, and this is very important for Muslims, she was in a situation where she had a a faithless husband, a husband who didn't honor God. And yet she saw what was the right thing to do. And even though she disobeyed her husband, she went against her husband. She obeyed God more than her husband. This is an important story because she obeyed God when her husband didn't. And when you're doing evangelism with Muslims, this is important because how many women out there, Muslim women who want to follow Christ, they fear to follow Christ because their family does not or their husbands do not. And because of that, it hinders them from giving themselves over to Christ to follow him. And it's very helpful for Muslim to show to Muslim women, and especially when Muslim women come out of Islam into Christ, you to help a Christian, new Christian woman who's just come out of Islam to help her see that ultimately now you do need to respect your husband where possible. But if he is asking you to sin against God, you're going to have to make a decision, and it's a hard one. It's a tough situation for Muslim women or ex-Muslim women. You've got to help them work that through. Now, just to clarify, we're not wanting women to go around and start disrespecting the husbands, but we do need to re- help them make, make sure that God is on the throne. The husband is not on the throne. God is on the throne. And in all cases, we ultimately serve and follow him. Esther, God rescues a whole people through Esther. I, you probably all know the story. A whole nation was saved through this one woman. And in essence, she was a concubine. I mean, she was a, a wife, but she was one of the many wives. It was a very desperate situation that she was in. Deborah led her people to victory. She stepped in and she led her people to victory. In fact, she worked with another woman who, who actually um, killed the enemy of, of, of the people. And um, the two women actually rescued the people of Israel at the time. So God works through this woman. She leads her people to victory. She had the gift of leadership. God raised her up for that time um, to do a phenomenal work for God uh, in, in in her time period. 
What about Manoah's wife? Um, she, her son was Samson. We always focus on Samson. We forget what happened before Samson came to be a prophet um, or a judge. Samson was a judge, and, but his, his mother, her, she's not mentioned by name. She's called Manoah's wife. In, in Judges 13, she's a lowly woman. She's barren. And then God meets with her twice. He meets with her once with the husband. And he tells her that she's going to have a son and that's going to be a, a special son. And this woman, this lowly woman is met by the God of the universe. What a profound um, action of God. He meets us lowly women and there are lowly Muslim women and the God of the universe wants to meet her, wants to meet those women. So help Muslims to see, to see how valuable they are to God, whatever their status in life. Hannah, we've talked about her already. 1 Samuel 1, God heard her cries as a barren woman. These pastoral situations, any of you have ever talked to a Muslim, and we have this in Christianity too, sadly, but according to the to Islamic idea, if a woman doesn't have a child, she's actually not done what she's supposed to do, even in a, in a spiritual sense. You're, you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to have children. Muhammad says, I got married, this is my way, and whoever is of me follows my way. It's a hadith that you hear and it's all over the internet. Muslims have to get married and have to have children. And so the stigma on a woman that doesn't have a child to the point where her husband can take on another woman to have a child through her if she can't have it. It's the kind of culture that Abraham lived in, the kind of culture that Abraham um, uh, and Sarah fell for when they didn't trust God. It's human culture. It's carnal culture. Hannah didn't have a child. God heard her cry and answered. Now, we have to be careful that we don't tell our Muslim friends God is always going to say yes to your prayers. It's not that God is going to give every barren woman a child. I have a relative who didn't have children, and I tell you that she has used, her, her and her husband have used their, their, their childless state to serve the Lord. They have reached so many young people for Christ and have been so faithful to being gospel witnesses because that she was barren. They didn't let it bother them. They moved on and served God together. A powerful testimony of a God-focused life. Hulda, I, I'll tell you, and I'll end with the story. Um, just very quickly, talk to your Muslim friends about Potiphar's wife, Genesis 29, um, where a young man resists the temptation um, of Potiphar's wife. And that's a in, helpful story to unpack with both men and women. And of course, um, Proverbs 31 is an important verse. I just want to make a point, Proverbs 31. Very quickly, when I was in Bible school, I used to have young men, um, I was a young woman, 20, and they would come up and say, I want a woman like the Proverbs 31 woman. They were thinking a homemaker at home. And I said, you do realize that Proverbs 31 talks about a, a businesswoman <laughs> too. So your wife could be a businesswoman or a homemaker. It could be either. Both is valuable in God's sight. But let's end with this story. Hulda, 2 Kings 22. I had a whole group of Kurdish women. I'll end with this story. And I opened up the Bible and I was doing a study with them on Hulda. Hulda, is a, she's actually called a prophetess. And God gave her a message to take to the king. God is using a woman to speak to a king or an earthly king. And when I opened up that story, the women were pouring over the Bible. Half of the women were, half of the women were Muslims and they compared it 
it to the Quran. The Quran has no concept of a woman being a messenger of God. The Bible has many stories of where God used women in the key part of his ministry. Hulda is one of them. She got a message from God for the king. Read that to your Muslim friends. Help them to see how valuable and central women are to God's salvation plan, to God's actions on earth, because it is absolutely profound when you see how how God works through women, speaks through women, and it uses women to, to rescue whole nations as well as bring them back to salvation. That's for today. That was for the Old Testament. And that's the message we need to communicate with Muslims.